All right, guys, what's up? This is Father Matt, and I am going to give my basic summary of what is going on in the introduction in chapters one through four of Frank Sheed's book entitled Map of Life. But before jumping into all that, I do want to say I hope everyone is doing well and staying healthy in the middle of this pandemic. Be assured of my prayers. Uh, public mass may be canceled, but I say mass each and every day. Remember you guys at the altar. Uh, please keep me in your prayers as well. If you have any specific prayer intentions, please let me know. Uh, if you if you want a mass intention, let me know. I do have a number of mass intentions, uh, but but shoot me an email, shoot me a text, or on the group me, and I'll I'll say mass for whatever intention you may have. Okay, Frank Sheed, a map of life. So there is a philosophical concept behind this entire book. Uh, and it's called teleology. Teleology comes from two Greek words, te telos, end goal, purpose, and logos, reason, explanation. And the idea is essentially that there is an intelligible order and purpose to the universe we live in, all right? Um, excuse me. If that sounds complex and hard to grasp, think of it this way. If we're trying to understand something, one of the most important questions to ask is, what is a thing for, okay? So St. Thomas Aquinas and Aristotle speak of this as the end. Think like end goal or destination, that for the sake of which it exists. And we can see this really easily in artificial things, in things human beings have made, like a car. A car is made, it exists for the sake of transportation. We can't understand a car unless we understand that the end for which it exists, which is getting me from point A to point B, right? A good car is one which can reliably transport us from one point to the next. A bad car is one that is not reliable and can't transport us from one point to the next. And St. Thomas Aquinas saw this as a universal truth, okay? One that we can discover by our reason alone, that everything that acts, acts for an end, all right? Whether we are talking about our eyes, whether we are talking about um, uh, human beings, right? Human beings, we have been created for an end. We act for an end. And what is that end? Uh, well, Aristotle said it's happiness, that all humans can't but want to be happy. Uh, but he said, we don't naturally know what happiness consists in. So he launches into this big discourse on the possibilities for happiness, but that, that that is the end that we're always acting towards is happiness, uh, that there's, or beat, uh, a eudomia, uh, beatitude, not this base fulfillment of desires, but this ultimate and lasting, perfect fulfillment of every good desire that we have, right? This, this uh, completion, okay? And so, like, we see this with morality, with morality. Morality, uh, in 2020, we often see it as, as something that is arbitrary. Uh, it's meant to keep me from having fun, uh, from doing what will really make me happy. In reality, questions about morality, they classically started with a question about happiness and our end, 
you know, how do we arrive, fulfill at this end that we've been created? And that's, this is really kind of the philosophical structure behind what Sheet is doing. And I'm sorry if that uh, wasn't too clear or if that went over people's heads. Uh, if it did, let me know. Um, but, but I thought that that can help shed some light to what he's doing here. So uh, let's let's look at a little bit at the introduction. So I, I do want to start with the idea of a map, okay? And I want you to think of something like a treasure map. The whole map is directed towards the location of the buried treasure, right? X, uh, excuse me, X marks the spot, as they say. So the map will tell you how to get to X. Or even think of like Google Map, right? You type in a destination and, you know, the lady uh, in your phone will talk to you until you turn here in two miles, go straight for 10 miles, right? Those directions are all about getting you to the end point. The reason we have a map is so we can get to the destination, the end. Uh, and the book is an attempt to show us how to arrive at the goal of our human existence, the end for which we have been made. And Sheet makes a point at the end of the introduction, maps do not prove, but only state. There are only two reasons for trusting a map. One is the authority of the map maker. The other is one's own experience uh, when one has traveled the road with its guidance. And a map, therefore, must be accepted or rejected according to the confidence the map maker deserves. In this instance, fortunately, the map maker is God. That's uh, on pages seven through eight on, on the version that I'm using as I am writing this talk and that was my Kindle version. I also have a hardcover version, you know, uh, or a, not a hardcover, but I have a, a physical paperback version. I like this book so much, I have it in two versions. Uh, anyways, uh, the point there is that this map of life that Sheed is writing about is not his own invention. What he is teaching in this book is what God has revealed to us uh, down through the ages, okay? So in summary, what he's getting at in the introduction is that life has a purpose, an end, uh, a, a destination. And to arrive at that end doesn't come naturally to us. We aren't born knowing how to fulfill the end we are created for. Uh, we have to follow a map, and the map we're going to follow is God's. So we're good on that end. All right. Sheed begins chapter one. Chapter one is called The Problem of Life's Purpose. Uh, he begins this by saying uh, man is a curiosity because he's comprised of spirit and matter, soul and body. All right, so this is important. We do need to get what's what's called theological, philosophical anthropology, anthropology being the study of man. Um, from a philosophical, theological standpoint, it's really important to get this correct. So we have a spirit, and by that he means a soul. And because we have an immortal soul, we have a rational intellect, uh, we have a free will, one that isn't governed by instinct. But we also have a corporeal body like the animals, all right? Animals don't have rational intellect, and uh, they, they don't have a free will. They're governed by instinct. So she then goes into a breakdown of the different categories of God's creatures. So we have angels who are the highest. And let me say this right now. Um, you do not become an angel when you die. Human souls never become angels, right? Angels are different creatures than humans, okay? Angels are pure spirits who have an intellect and a will, but do not have a body, all right? Uh, then we have the lowest of God's creatures to be inanimate objects that aren't living, rocks. Next, we have vegetative life. 
this life is moving in the sense that it's growing. Think of trees. And then we have sentient life, animals, which have a body, move, uh, but they aren't governed by an intellect and free will. They're governed by instinct, right? And finally, we have man, whose body, soul, composite. We've already talked quite a bit about that. One, one or two other things about the human soul. The human soul is the principle of life in the body. So philosophically and theologically, when we speak about death, we speak about death as the separation of the soul from the body. The intellect and the will are faculties of the soul but they are faculties which are meant to work in and with the body, all right? So we learn through our senses. So the soul is meant to be with the body. That's why uh, there's a resurrection. I mean, we die, our soul is separated from our body, uh, but uh, one day it will be reunited, okay? All right, so then he, uh, Sheed, transitions and says on page 10, we shall understand the map better if we grasp its universal necessity. Really, what he's getting at here is the need for divine revelation to discover our end, our purpose. Um, and, you know, he kind of goes through this thought experiment uh, to get to that point. He says, to know what a thing is, we need to ask what it's for. And the perfect way to know the purpose of a thing is to find out from its maker. So you see right here, you see why I hopefully why I led off with the teleology, right? It's it's really this perennial philosophical principle, a very important one that that is the foundation of, of his work here. And he uh, he uses the example of a razor, a man who never shaved, finds a razor, learns it cuts and then tries to cut wood with it. Now, all right, this book was written a long time ago. He isn't thinking of like a, a Gillette razor, okay? <laughs> He's thinking of like a razor blade. People used to shave with those. They used those blades to, and they put them in these things called safety razors. I don't really know how the process goes. I've always used, uh, I use Harry's now, but I've always used kind of the newer kinds of razors. Not that that's important, nor that you're listening uh, to this to hear that, but, you know, I'm too far in to start over. So anyways, hypothetically, this guy finds a razor and tries to cut the wood with it. He fails to cut wood and ruins the razor. Why? Well, he used it without knowing its purpose. Um, and he could have known its purpose by going to the man who came up with the razor blade because he invented the razor blade for, uh, for shaving. Now, let's apply these two principles to know what a thing is. Uh, we ask what it is for. And the best way to do that is to ask its maker. Let's apply that with man. We need to know what man is for. This was the whole point, again, of me talking about teleology. And he's eventually going to move on to talk about revelation. But this part, beginning on page 12 and into page 13, could be a little confusing. And I just, just let's keep it simple. What is man created for? What is our purpose for our telos? Well, we have a couple of options. One is we could simply try and use our reason. And we could reason and we could look at human nature. And then once we've understood nature, using our intellect, using our reason, we can come to discover the end we are created for. That sounds simple enough, but there's a couple of problems with that. First and foremost, there's no guarantee that we will correctly understand human nature. And even if we get human, uh, excuse me, if we get human nature wrong, 
then we're going to be completely wrong about our end. And the second object, objection she brings up is that this scenario of us using our reason to discover our end would work um, assuming two things. Number one, we were able to truly and fully understand human nature without error. And number two, uh, quote, if the purpose of man's life were contained in it. That is, if man's purpose simply meant the highest activity possible to his own nature. So Aristotle, the Greek philosopher who did not know God's revelation, essentially did this. And, and he was he did a pretty darn good job of analyzing human nature. And he said man's end is the contemplation of the good. He was right on a natural level. Contemplation is our end. He looked at our highest faculty intellect and said, you know, contemplation was our good. Yet God has revealed that we are created not for a natural end, for an end that's contained in our human nature, but for a supernatural end, something super, something above our nature. And apart from the revelation of God, we cannot know this with certainty, right? We, we Unless God told us this, we would not know it, right? So we, we need him to step in and tell us. Next, Sheed goes into this argument for why it's rational to accept the revelation of God, okay? Um, and so I'm just, I'm just going to kind of summarize some of this here. So it, to, all right, number one, as we've said, it is the only way of knowing our purpose and living according to it because our purpose is supernatural. Number two, uh, the object of the intellect is truth, and God has told us the truth. So, I mean, it doesn't matter whether we've discovered it for ourselves or whether we've learned it from another. Uh, you know, it fulfills, uh, it, we, we want to know, we want to know the truth. Uh, and then number three, apart from a right view of the purpose of human life, we can't truly help one another in a lasting way. He spends a lot of time on this. Um, Really, what he's getting at here is that morality of any kind can only be properly understood in light of our final end. Not just morality, but like that we can't truly do good. We can't truly help others unless we properly understand the end goal for which we are made. Okay. And he closes by saying two questions then are to be asked by any religious or social teacher. Uh, the first is, what is the purpose of man's life? The second is, how do you know? If the answer to the second isn't, God has revealed it, then he is wasting time. If he says God has revealed it, then he must be prepared to show that God has done so. To both questions, the Catholic Church has the answer, he writes on page 18. Uh, so, anyways, chapter one, the problem of life's purposes. We have a purpose. It is, uh, it, we have an end. It is not a natural end. God has revealed it to us as a supernatural end. He doesn't really go into so much detail about what that end is. He'll do that in chapter four. Uh, but, but right now, he's just trying to convince us that A, we have an end. B, it's a supernatural end. Uh, well, he doesn't really try and convince us of that. He, he, he will a little bit later on. Um, but see that that uh, it's necessary for God to have revealed it and that it's rational to accept that revelation. Okay. Uh, next up, we have chapter two. 
the problem of life's laws. Um, all right, we're going to talk about law. Uh, he begins by saying the world is full of laws, and we typically discover them by experience. And what he means here, he doesn't mean here like state laws, federal laws. He means things like, quote unquote, laws of nature. Fire burns, okay? Hunger weakens. You know, we get wet when it rains on us, right? We, when we encounter these things, we realize we do not choose them. We find out what these, quote unquote, laws are. And we cannot make them be. So the same thing to do is to accept them and live according to them. There is no such thing uh, as freedom from the law. Okay, so if you listen to these daily fervorino homilies I've been putting out yesterday, which was March 18th, I, I touched on this idea a little that, that true freedom is not the license to do whatever we want. It is the capacity to do what we ought. And I use the example of the Chevy truck with a diesel engine. And I, you know, so in this hypothetical, the guy opens the user manual and it says diesel fuel only. Gap cap says diesel fuel only. And after a while, he's like, what the heck? Who does Chevy think they are to tell me what kind of fuel I can or can't put in my truck? I'm not going to live by their stupid arbitrary laws. I will determine for myself. And then he puts diesel or excuse me, he puts unleaded fuel into his diesel truck and, and it ruins it. Right. He's he's not more free because he's done whatever he felt like. He's less free. True freedom means we are free to choose what is good, what is right, what will lead to our ultimate flourishing. Trying to break the law, trying to live apart from the law leads to the very opposite of flourishing as my ruined as this ruined Chevy diesel truck example tried to show. By the way, just disclaimer, that is not a real example. I've never owned a Chevy truck other than um, Chevy SUVs, uh, neither of which were diesel. I do know a girl, I know two girls who put diesel gas in their unleaded car. It's not as bad for uh, an unleaded car, but it still really messes it up and you can't drive it for a while. Anyways, he goes on to say that there are laws which govern the body, just as there are laws which govern the body, so too there are laws which govern the soul, moral laws. And these laws are not made by man. They're not dependent on approval by man. Uh, these laws are not possible to escape from. We can ignore the moral laws as we might ignore a physical law, a natural law, but we do so at our own peril. And then he gets into these modern examples where we think the moral law doesn't apply to us. For example, modern man thinks he's no longer bound by the law of marriage. That was true whenever he wrote this book, you know, 70 years ago or whenever it was. It is even more uh, so it is even more true today, truer today. But to say man is no longer bound by the law of marriage and here what Sheet is thinking about is the law of marriage is indissoluble, which means divorce isn't possible in a true marriage. To say man isn't bound by the law of marriage is like saying man isn't bound by gravity. The question isn't whether the law is old, but it's true. It is a law. Oh, okay. So that objection was the law is old fashioned. Uh, should have said that at the start. Okay. Uh, then there's this modern assumption that human authority may abrogate the law. That means get rid of the law. Yet the state's law can't change the moral law anymore then it can say fire doesn't burn, right? Uh, we see this, unfortunately, a lot with our state's laws, not, not just our state's, Kansas. It's true in Kansas, but just our nation in general. 
um, that, that the state seems to think it can redefine marriage. It can, um, it can, it can redefine these things. Uh, it, it's like passing a law saying gravity doesn't exist anymore. It, 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 these laws are not dependent on approval by us, right? It's, it's like the state passing a law saying you can now put unleaded gas in diesel engines. It's like, okay, the state can say that. It's still going to ruin your engine if you do it. We live in a world of laws. Right? Successful living involves living in accord with these laws. God has revealed the laws of, spirits, uh, of the spirit because they are essential laws and breaking them leads to disaster. So we must know not only the purpose of life, but the laws of how to fulfill our purpose to arrive at our end. Think of it this way with a map. It is one thing to know X marks the spot. It's one thing to know our destination, but we also need to know what we ought to do and what we ought to avoid to successfully reach the destination. Right? That's a whole other thing. And we need to know that. So then he jumps to another section on freedom. He gives another good analogy for why freedom is not the power to do whatever we want. Um, and he wraps up this chapter by speaking about our dependence on God, that yes, we are incredibly dependent upon him uh, in that he's revealed to us our supernatural purpose, uh, which we'll talk a little bit more about in the next chapter, and the laws by which we can attain the, that end. But our dependence upon God, as he wrote in chapter, uh, excuse me, on page 27, though total, absolute, and without any shadow of exception, is not the dependence of machines upon a mad mechanic or of slaves upon a mad king. It is the dependence of free men upon an all-wise and all-loving creator who knows our being more intimately than, who knows their being more intimately than they know it themselves, who knows where in the fulfillment of their being lies and whose will it is that the fulfillment should actually be achieved. God knows us. He knows our purposes. Uh, he knows our purpose, excuse me, and how it can actually be obtained and brought about. Okay, so that is chapter two. We move on to chapter three, which speaks about heaven, okay? Uh, and and so it's interesting because we move on, we, we've kind of set the stage, and we begin to talk about the map, and he begins by talking about the end of the map, heaven, right? Because the whole point of this book, the whole point of the map is that there is a whole point to our life, that we have a final end, an ultimate purpose for which we have been created, and the map only makes sense in light of the end. Uh, it only makes sense in light of the X that marks the spot. So what is that last end? Where should the road of life lead? And he goes through a variety of options before writing on page. You know, he goes to talk about life after death. If the atheist says life ends with death and kind of goes on from there. And he says that the, uh, Page 28, 29, bottom of 28, top of 29. The Catholic has always realized that as to what comes after death, the only way of finding out is to be told by someone who has personal knowledge of the other world. And God, the author of this life and the next, has told us of the future that he has prepared for us. The road of life runs through this life to heaven. Heaven, then, is the end of the road. And he talks about how the idea of, of heaven has suffered recently that heaven is not harps and clouds and streets of golds, that those are mere symbols. So what is heaven? Heaven uh, is to know and love God in the fullest uh, sense of those two words, and that means perfect happiness, right? What is happiness? Well, intellect, our intellect knows the truth and is happy in the knowledge. The will loves goodness and is happy in that love. And 
sees, we see and rejoice in beauty. In heaven, all of this is true to the highest degree possible. What I think is the most important section in this chapter um, is actually, he actually sets it apart as a section, the section called the supernatural life. And early in this section, um, which, which again, in my Kindle version begins in page 32, uh, bottom of 32, top of 33, heaven is thought of as a reward for, of a good life. As such, it has only an accidental connection with this life. But she says it is better to think of heaven not only as a reward, which it is, but also as the result of a good life. And he uses this example of a student who passes an exam and wins a prize. And there's two different prizes. One is a tennis racket and the other is that he's admitted to further study. The point of the analogy is that a tennis racket is a stupid prize. I'm just kidding. Uh, no, a tennis racket has nothing to do with winning the test is the point. But being admitted to further study is directly connected. You've shown by passing the exam that you are prepared for further study. So this life, she writes, is not only a test that a man must pass in order to obtain the reward of heaven. It is also a preparation uh, a man must successfully undergo in order to live the life of heaven. Okay, so this life is, is a test that we must pass in order to obtain that end that we are created for. But this life is also a time of preparation and we must successfully undergo that preparation to live the life of heaven. Um, and the next point he makes is really important. Whatever is necessary to enable man to live the life of heaven must in some way or other be acquired by man in this life. Otherwise, this life would not be a preparation for heaven. And he uses the illustration of space and, and how to live on another world. We would need some what he calls an artificial breathing apparatus. Look, he's talking about a spacesuit. It's not his fault. This was written before space travel uh, of really any kind. I think uh, we would need a spacesuit. All right. If we were going to go into space, if we were going to go to another planet, we would need one of those astronaut suits. Right. Because our nature isn't suited to living on, say, Mars or the moon. All right. Well, just as, as we would need some extra power of breathing not contained in our nature to live on another planet, so we, we need extra powers in our soul not contained in our nature in order that we might live the life of heaven. What are these powers? They're sanctifying grace, which is a share in God's own nature, which she rightly calls the supernatural life, okay? And he, go, and he says this, and this is very important. Uh, our life will be a success if at the moment of death, whenever that may be, we have in our soul the life above our nature, the supernatural life, the life of, of, of sanctifying grace. It will be a failure if at death we have not the supernatural life. Okay. Finally, last but not least, uh, until I do a, a podcast for chapters, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know I was ending the chapter so suddenly. Okay, that's the end of chapter chapter three. Okay, so finally, last but not least, until I do the podcast for chapters five and six is chapter four, the creation and the fall. Okay, so he begins by summarizing what we've learned so far. To understand this map, we need to know number one, the knowledge of the purpose of life, telos, end. Number two, knowledge of the laws to be obeyed. And number three, 
to obtain the end for which we were made, we need supernatural life. Now, it needs to be said that the road that you and I and generation upon generation of people have walked down was not the original road, was not the first road. The road walked by our first parents, Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve fell. Adam, head of the human race, fell. And the road has been different ever since. Okay? So Adam and Eve were created with a human nature, body and soul, intellect and will. But over and above the human nature, they were given supernatural gifts, the supernatural life of grace, sanctifying grace, and uh, they were given these preternatural gifts, all right, which these gifts, they weren't above our nature, but they perfected it, such as immortality, impassibility, which is freedom from suffering, uh, integrity, their appetites and desires were in accord with their reason. The fall of Adam and Eve was a sin of disobedience. The devil of fallen angel did play a part in that. After the fall, Adam and Eve lost the supernatural life of grace and the preternatural gifts. They, of course, retained human nature. Yet the, they lost the supernatural life of grace and the preternatural gifts for all ages, right? Adam, uh, in a sense, represented all of us because he was the head of the human race. That's why we call Christ the new Adam, right? Christ uh, succeeds. Christ, the new Adam, succeeds where the first Adam falls. Uh, but the problem after the fall is we need to get to heaven. That's still our end. That's still the goal that we've been created for. But we have lost the spacesuit that we need to get there, so to speak. Okay. Uh, we were we were born with that spacesuit. We would have been born with that spacesuit if Adam and Eve hadn't sinned. Um, the spacesuit, of course, is the supernatural life of grace. That to get to heaven, to live the life of heaven, we need the supernatural life, uh, and and we lost that with the fall. Sorry if I confused it by that analogy. But thankfully, God does for us what we could not do for ourselves. He makes uh, a threefold restitution. And so built a new road for hum humanity. For the new road, for the building of the new road, God became man. And that, I believe, brings us to chapter five, the incarnation, which we will talk about in the next podcast. Guys, uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for uh, preparing for this awakening retreat. Um, you know, you're in my prayers. I remember you at the altar every day. Please remember me. Stay healthy and God bless.